Hello, it's the F1 summer break. How are you coping? Well, we're going to cheer you up by spending a bit of time putting questions to the 96 F1 world champion, who is, of course, Mr. Damon Hill. Welcome to the first of two F1 Nation Ask Damon specials. Questions, please. Damon Hill, do you think it's time maybe you should change your approach to racing? <laughs> well, I don't know even how to start answering that question, but anyway. Hi, Damon. This is Suzanne from Columbus, Ohio, USA. Hi, Damon. I'm Yu Chen from China. Assalamu alaikum. This is Faris from Bahrain. Hi, Damon. This is Rick from the Netherlands. My question for you, Damon, is... My question for Damon. I have a question. My question to you is... I hope you can help clarify that for me. Yeah, we'd love to know your thoughts. Looking forward to your answer. Thanks. Some more questions, please. Tom, great to see you. Damon, are you ready? Hello, Natalie. Welcome back. We've got a little bit of a backlog, actually, here of questions, of Ask Damon questions we haven't managed to get through during this incredible season we've had. So now's our chance. All right, Damon. Well, if you're ready, let's have the first question. Hey, Damon. This is Paxton from Orlando, Florida. I wanted to ask you, with Fernando Alonso signing his brand new contract deal for multi-years, how old do you think Fernando Alonso will be when he eventually retires? Because it seems like he's going to keep going for a little while longer. And do you think that you would be performing at the same level as Fernando Alonso at the age that he is right now? Um, Thank you. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Hi, Paxton from Orlando, Florida. Good question. I did retire when I was, I think I just turned 39. uh, And I'd always had it in my mind that racing drivers should stop before they're 40. Um, I think possibly because my dad kept racing until he was 45. And I remember journalists saying, you know, he really ought to stop now. It's all a bit you know, looking a bit sad and long in the tooth and stuff. And he was trying to build his own team up. So I think that might have registered with me as a kind of negative. Uh, 1999, that's when I finished racing. But at the beginning of the year, we went to Melbourne and we had our team photographs. And I remember standing next to the new drivers who were coming in and I realised they were 20 years younger than me. And I don't know about you, but I, I always thought if I was, you know, going to be invited to a party and the kids were 20 years younger than me I'd feel a little bit uncomfortable so I was starting to doubt whether or not I should be hanging out with the kids in Formula One aged 40 (laughs) so that was one of my uh, ways of dealing with it I don't know uh, maybe that was the wrong way of looking at it but um, uh, yeah Fernando is firing on all cylinders and looking very strong and incredible and of course remember that Fangio he didn't come and start in Formula One until he was about 38 And he went on till he was uh, way into his um, mid-40s at a time when it was extremely dangerous. So he must have had nerves of steel and incredible skill, as obviously we know, and which is the same as Fernando Alonso. And so, you know, I think it's it's down to whether you love it or not. And if you've got enough energy and you keep yourself in good shape, then why not? Why not keep going? So Fernando could go till he was 40. Let's say I'm going to pick a number. When is he going to retire? I think he'll retire when he's 44. Oh, three years. I think you make a really interesting point there, Damon. And it's about how important self-doubt is, or at least or the opposite, how important confidence is and self-belief. Because the minute self-doubt starts creeping in, that's when you do start questioning. And the fact that you were asking yourself the question whether you still were in the right age bracket to be there is fascinating. Because as soon as that starts chipping away at your, at your confidence to perform, you know, that, that, you know, the chinks in the armour start appearing, don't they? I think that you need, you're absolutely right, you need 100% 
confidence and self-belief and there needs to be no doubt that what you're doing is the right thing and you and you are absolutely in the right place and I, I have to admit that part of the equation in my mind at least was uh, well I lost my dad when I was quite young and I knew what that was like for a family so I had a, I had four children by then and I didn't want to do the same to them so I you know there was there was a I was in a conflicted situation as a racing driver and as a as a dad um and i and i felt very uncomfortable about that so that that played on my mind now that's that's not the case with some drivers they don't have families they don't have children they can focus on it so damon you're absolutely right about fangio he actually carried on driving until he was 47 and one thing i think is quite interesting is that if you were still driving at 41 you would have overlapped with fernando alonso so if you were still driving at his age you would have raced against a 19 year old spaniard went on to become a double world champion. Yeah. So there's no doubt that he thoroughly still backs himself in a race car. So I'm going to go for 67. (laughs) (laughs) Because quite frankly, a grid without Fernando, it ain't no grid at all. Yeah. I'm kind of with you, Pinks. I I love having Fernando around. I think there was a little bit of self-doubt, funnily enough, last year around the Monaco Grand Prix time when he couldn't get his head around uh, these Pirelli tyres and he was slightly struggling for pace relative to Ocon and I think it was marginal as to whether he was going to continue. But this year, there is no self-doubt at all, is there? And I think he's loving it as much as ever. He loves the politics of it. He just loves everything about Formula One, doesn't he? It's as much in, in the paddock as on the racetrack. Just look at the coup, in a way, that he pulled off on the Monday after the Hungarian Grand Prix with his move to Aston Martin. Yes, he loves bringing surprises, doesn't yeah. he? Whether it's on the racetrack or off it, he likes outfoxing the opposition. If you want to do if you think, oh, yippee, I'm going to go drive my race car, then... That's where the speed comes from. If you th- if you think, oh no, not again! I've got to go to an airport. I've got to pack my bags. I've got to get jet lag. I've got to talk to Tom Clarkson and answer all the questions <laughs> in the FIA press conference again. Then or Natalie Pinkham, um, right. you know, uh, it, yeah. Well, I'm I'm saying how it is from a driver's point of view. All that can wear you down. Guys, Michael Schumacher is another age reference here because remember he took those three years out after Ferrari, came back with Mercedes, and He took pole position at Monaco in 2012. Okay, it was taken away because um, he was carrying a penalty from the previous race, but he actually set the fastest lap in qualifying Monaco 2012 at the age of 43. So you you can still do it. Yeah, he can do it. But you can also, I think you saw stuff with Michael that you would never have seen him do in the past. And he had a few little dropped balls, you know, and and running into the back of people in Singapore and and little things that you look at and you kind of go, well, that's, that's not like Michael to do that. So something cracks, something gets worn out in the you know, aging process. You're not as instinctive, I think, is the, is the main thing. I mean, maybe the formula we have at the moment is, is better suited to drivers with lots of experience. It's not a flat out blast from beginning to end. Uh, you know, it's getting better, but it's, um, it involves a lot of tactical thinking. And that's where I think Fernando is absolutely superb. He's a real tactical as you can see in his politics as well, and also in his you know business acumen, where to go and, and how to play the game, you know he's he's very good at seeing a race and being in the race and knowing oh I'm going to change my my strategy here because I I just feel that that his years of experience tells him this is going to be good at the end of the race. I mean Monaco when he was going really really slow he could get away with it. I mean he's cheeky as hell. Do you know what though? I think it's the hardest decision any sports person can make 
as to when to retire. Because when you've come off the back of a victory, the last thing you want to do is quit. You want to emulate that victory again and again and again. You want to recreate that buzz. But actually to not go out at the top is also very difficult because you start spiraling and you say, at what point do I call it quits? And then I think the hardest transition then kicks in, how to redefine yourself after all the glory of your your sporting success. As a podcaster, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's have the next question, please. Hi there, this is Taylor from Canada. I really enjoy the podcast and how it's informative uh, technically as well as experience from past drivers like yourself, Damon. And the banter is always fun to listen to as well. My question to you is, with all the new races that are well coming up, Las Vegas, Miami, rumors of other races getting added, and even during the pandemic, bringing back old favorites to fill in the calendar. Damon, if you were given the task to design a new racetrack, where would it be? What type of track? Is it a, a typical track? Is it a street circuit? You have unlimited money. What are, you, what, what, are you, what are you designing for the drivers to drive? Lots of chicanes, straight lines. Interested to hear what you have to say. Thanks again. Okay, Taylor, this is the fantasy track that every racing driver has in their mind. Uh, it's, it combines all the things they love about the sport, which, which is going to be very difficult because what we have is we have circuits that are traditional tracks built in sometimes very out of the way places, let's say Spa, you know, it's in the Ardennes Forest, absolutely spectacular location, uh, or even the Red Bull Ring, you know, is in a beautiful spot, um, but it's a little bit more, more difficult for people to get to. And then you have the inner city tracks, as you mentioned, from Miami and, and you know, we've, we've done some great things. Singapore is, is, a, is a great location and also a great track. And I think people think of Singapore as one of the real challenges of the sport at the moment. So, and Monaco, and then you have, you know, that's an anachronistic circuit where it's been, it's been used for since before the war. And yet it provides a challenge yet again, another challenge. If you get a Monaco victory or a Monaco pole in your, on your CV, then that is something that to really be proud of and, and, uh, and as seen as a mark of your talent. So what would be the ideal circuit? It would, it would have to go out into the country, go through the mountains, come back to the city, go through an inner city section, a stadium section, a bit like they have in Mexico, which is absolutely stunning, the baseball section and uh, be easy to get to as well i mean i love those circuits where the formula one car can stretch its legs when we get to the tighter twisty tracks that i feel sometimes they're a little bit clumsy you know the cars are not designed to go at such slow speeds so but i like the variety you know a season is about different tracks different challenges it shouldn't all be the same that i think that's the fatal mistake is is to make tracks off a computer You've got to use the terrain. Is there a better racetrack in the world than Suzuka? Damon, surely. I think you've just described it with all the elevation change, the fast corners so they can stretch their legs. Yeah, it's designed, of course, by the same guy that did Zanvort, John John Hugenholtz. And it's got, you know, it's narrow. It's unbelievably narrow. So you have to thread your car around the circuit. It's got changes of camber. It's got bumps. It's got fast corners slow corners it's a great track and of course it's a figure of eight just like the old scale electrics <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, um, toy track but um it is probably one of the best challenges for a, a racing driver 
And it's also good on TV. That's the other thing. It's, it's got to be spectacular when we watch it on, on screen. The only thing I'd pick up on there, Damon, is the point you make about the variety. Because for me, that is exactly what the calendar is all about. Not just for the sake of the aesthetic, uh, but also the fact that so often it is track specific in terms of a car's performance. And so it does shuffle the pecking order in such a way that keeps us on our toes, on the edge of our seats and uh, big fans of the sport. Because you, you, you can go into a race weekend just not knowing how a team will fare uh, from one racetrack to another. Okay, so the three ingredients are getting back to the question, Taylor, and <laughs> what you asked me. Lots of straights? No, I don't think you need lots of straights. I do think you need a proper long one, though. And you need tight chicanes? Yes, you need tight chicanes. And I don't mean these corners that are separated by too much of a gap in the middle. I used to like those chicanes where you had to hustle the car through and maybe take a bit of curb and you could find a chunk of time. If you have a long straight after a tight chicane, the faster you can go through the chicane, then you can gain a lot of lap time. So that's good. So, yeah, that obviously means high speed. But it has to have also a spectacularly fast, high-loaded, top, almost top-gear corner somewhere. Not cops, maybe bridge. Do you remember bridge was a, a corner that they had at Silverstone, um, which went as it just as its name suggests under the bridge and then uh, was slightly banked and, and rising up all the the lesmo corners in monza which were absolutely fantastic until they they had to make the second lesmo a little bit slower that that was great parabolica you know corners like that these things are what make the heart race all right team what about question three Hi, Damon. I'm Yu Chen from China. We are extremely excited about Zhou Guanyu as the first F1 driver from China. Uh, it's been 18 years since we had the first Chinese Grand Prix in 2004. So I'd like to ask you about what's your earliest or deepest memory about F1 and China. Thank you. Yu Chen, well, actually... My earliest memory of China and racing in China was, of course, the Macau Grand Prix, where we used to go or aspire to go as young racing drivers, because if you were selected to race in the Macau Grand Prix, then you were you know, in the top group of uh, up-and-coming racing drivers. And to win it, of course, would be a huge accolade. And I never managed to do that. I think I came second, but uh, mostly because the people in front of me crashed. But um, it's grown enormously since then. It's almost unrecognisable to, to the place that I first went. I think my enduring memory of China is just how big everything is. Um, you travel for a long time to get out to the track. And then when you arrive in the paddock, and, and you've got to remember that this was my second ever race in Formula One after the Australian Grand Prix in 2011, went to China. and The, the paddock was vast. And I remember my producer saying to me that I had to go and, and find a driver. And I mean, it was, it was like a marathon just to get from one end to the other. The grandstands are massive. If you, if you turn your back to the grandstands and look out to the hospitality units, they sort of float in these really beautiful sort of Chinese house designs. Gorgeous. So there's a lot of beauty to it, but it is massive. There's one incident that I certainly remember from uh, the 2005 Chinese Grand Prix. I don't know whether you guys do, but the lap to the grid, Christian Albers and Michael Schumacher crashed into each other. Although I think it was more Michael crashing into Christian and, you know, both had to jump into the spare cars. They had to start from the pit lane, but it was an extraordinary incident. You know, Michael getting a bit long in the tooth, perhaps, to refer back to our first question. But it was definitely an error of judgment and one that changed the shape of that race. 
Yeah, it's a shame he didn't do more of that when I was racing against him. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Guan Yu, of course, we are excited to have Joe in Formula One. Uh, Hugely excited and hugely impressed. And also like a lot of his radio communications, because he seems to have uh, picked up some of the British sense of humour. Maybe it's Chinese sense of humour. We've been in Sheffield for a long time, hasn't he? And he's got a twang. He's got the Sheffield twang. And he's got a confidence about himself, which I like. You know, he's he's out there and he's enjoying it and he's he's having fun and, and also working hard. So, yeah, he's definitely got something. He's impressed us on a number of occasions. I'm afraid to say that was rather a shocking accident he was involved in and uh, certainly got our attention. And we're very glad to see he got out of that in one piece. He made a name for himself in slight, the, the way he wouldn't have wanted. You know, there's a lot of merit to his performance. You know, he's he's doing the right stuff. One of my happy memories, Yu Chen, of going uh, to the the Shanghai circuit was I got a chance to drive the Lotus 49B that my dad became world champion in. And Lotus flew it all the way out to China. And before the main event, I was given free reign to go around the circuit on my own in this fantastic world championship winning car. Do you get emotional when you're driving your dad's old cars? I do feel a connection between me and the old man. And it's a very unique thing. It's it's sort of, there is definitely a bond between the machine and the driver because your environment becomes, you know, you in a sense. I kind of sense his presence a little bit when I'm in those cars. And um, it is genuinely uh, a touching thing to do uh, and a privilege to do. And of course, I wish he was still around to be able to show off in his championship winning cars, which he can't do. But at least uh, my son's driven it as well. So that's really nice to see, passing it on down through the generations. I'm just impressed by your heel and towing, Dave. I was going to ask for a critique of my my downshifting. (laughs) Not bad, eh? Okay, time for the next question, please. Hi, Damon. Uh, My name is Kester. I'm in London. I've been watching F1 since the early 90s. And throughout your career, you raced against some serious talent and you beat them. Now, except Michael Schumacher, who would you say you relished racing against the most? And were there any particular races where you have fond memories of challenging them on track? Hi, Kester. Yes, good question. Yeah, everyone's different to race against. I think when you've got someone like Michael Schumacher and there's a little bit of maybe bad blood or at least uh, perceived bad blood between you and uh, another competitor, it can get a little bit more cautious. You have to give them a little bit more of a wider berth, whereas there's other people who who are kind of, you know them a little bit and you know that they won't give you such a hard time. But, you know, racing drivers do change personality when they put their helmets on. It's a bit like most people when they get in their car, you know, the, the red mist factor. So you'd never, you're never totally sure what people are going to be like. And sometimes it could be quite surprising uh, people you thought you got on quite well with can do some pretty awful things in a race context uh, and uh, try and catch you out. But then anybody entering a motor race has to be aware that nobody is their mate. You know, there's no mates in this business when you're racing. People will push the limits. They will they will do stuff which is maybe slightly beyond the acceptable norms because they want to win. And then they're, and they're under pressure as well from their managers team managers and their teams as well so if they see their driver going soft on someone trying to overtake them or they don't try hard enough to overtake the person in front then the team will give them a hard time so they they're obliged to to give their very best and be attackers as far as names go i mean i obviously i wouldn't say i 
I beat Ayrton Senna, but I was in a race with, with Ayrton a few times and I had, I had him around me. I mean, there was Donington famously where I, I'm kicking myself still for letting him through too easily. The start of the 76th lap. couple of corners by Ayrton Senna. Tremendous stuff. He muscled his way back into the contention at Redgate. He's going inside Damon Hill. I looked in my mirror and there was Ayrton and he was coming and I suddenly thought, don't do anything silly. And I don't know why I thought that, but uh, anyway, off he went and he won his one of his most famous races. And Senna into second place already. And he's giving it absolutely everything in the wet part of the race. That's so interesting then. So you do actually change your style depending on who's coming up behind you. Well, I, I mean, Don, I think Donington was the second race and the first race I spun off, and it was my first full season with uh, to, from Williams. So I was really conscious that I couldn't make any more mistakes. And it just was too easy. If it was a Formula Ford race or a Formula 3 race where I was racing against people I was more confident against, I would have been much more aggressive in defending. But there was something... Yeah, something sort of self-protective. And he could sense that, I think. And he was just on full attack mode. He was a full attack driver all the time. Yeah, he he got the better of not just me, but everyone on that race meeting. But I mean, I know, Tom, you are about to go and uh, do one of your fantastic Beyond the Grid interviews with a famous racing driver. Who, who was, will remain nameless for now. Who remain nameless. But <laughs> he was one of those drivers that puts people's back up. And he didn't mind doing it. And, and he wasn't there to make friends. Uh, and of course, we, we saw some of the best racing between him and some other drivers. I won't mention their names either. But anyway, what Kester said, the interesting bit is, he says it, who else did Damon especially love racing against? Well, I think you love racing. I think as a racing driver, you love the racing. I don't know if you particularly love racing against anyone in particular, but I will say this. If you beat Michael Schumacher, then you can say to yourself, you have performed at the very highest level. And if it wasn't for Michael Schumacher, my arch nemesis, and not lots of other drivers are arch nemesis in the sport, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't know how to rank yourself in the pantheon. So I think of myself as very fortunate to have been in an era where there was Michael and there was Ayrton, and there was Nigel, there was Alan Prost. And I got a chance to compare myself with them. So, you know, the quality of the competition is very, very important. You know, you want to be put to the test. And that's, that's the real joy of sport and competition is getting the best out of yourself and you can only find out if that's the best or even beyond your best if you're up against the best final question for this episode and it's not about racing i hope you're ready for that damon Ooh, i'm intrigued hey damon my name is Daksh. i'm from philadelphia and i had a question about your musical career i was listening to this extremely old uh deaf leopard album and i saw that in the last song on the album, you were credited as Demon Hill. I was wondering what made you choose that particular name? And also, how did you end up being uh, credited on the album? It seems like a very peculiar way for uh, an F1 driver to pivot to a new field, and that's so drastically different from the main career. So yeah, I'd love to get to know your story and what happened there. Thank you. Hi, Darkshire. Yeah, well, I, I, I've got rudimentary skills on the guitar, uh, but I'm, uh, I was a wannabe. 
I like the music and I like playing guitar and I and I thought I'll see if I can have some fun and I've done a couple of charity gigs with a couple of bands we put together when I stopped racing and they were called uh, they had stupid names like the Conrods so there was anything anything that was motor racing related or that we could shoehorn some song in there that had a reference to a car or a road so it was sort of themed <laughs> a themed band and we went out and had some fun but I, I quickly realised that um, being on the roads more hard work than, uh, than racing when I lived in Ireland there was a lot of artists who lived in Ireland at the time. Amongst them was uh, Joe Elliott of Def Leppard. So I got to know him a little bit. And he said, I said, I was chatting and I said, uh, you know, what you live here? Yeah, we're just, we're just doing it. Oh, you play guitar? Yeah, I play guitar. I said, well, why don't you, he said, why don't you come and play on our album? I think I was slightly better than he thought I would be. And anyway, so I went up and I knocked on the door. I said, uh, well, you know, you said I could play in your album. Here I am. And I've got my guitar. And so he said, right, come down to the basement. And there was the band and they were recording Euphoria. And they said, right, we've got a little bit of a track here. You can play on this Demolition Man. So I, I played out the outro of Demolition Man. And I'm not a member of Def Leppard, but I loved Joe Elliott. He was a lovely guy. And the band, they were really kind to me. And um, sorry if I... <laughs> I'm sorry if I've made a mess of one of their songs, but uh, I think actually it's quite good. If you listen to it, you can, if you play Demolition Man, the last riffy, rocky riffy guitar sounding thing is me as they faded out. One hit wonder. Yeah, exactly. Not even, yeah, I was a, I was a tenth or not even that hundredth of a, of a track on one album. Come on then, but why Demon Hill? I mean, we know you're a little devil, really. I think it's probably a spelling mistake, Natalie. I, I mean, I'd like to oh, I'd like to give on. the impression I'm some sort of fiend on the guitar, but uh, I had no idea I was referred to as Demon Hill on the album cover. So thanks for letting me know there. It's news <laughs> to me. Well, thank you very much for your questions on Ask Demon. I mean, Damon, it was enlightening as ever. Champ, thank you. We've got another one coming up, so don't fear. You're not going to be starved of all F1 content for much longer. Join us next week for the second in our Ask Damon series. We'll be doing Ask Damons throughout the rest of the season, so please keep them coming in and record them as usual on an audio file and email them to us at askdamon at f1.com. And don't forget, the second half of the F1 season is Belgium, Holland, Italy, Singapore, Japan, the US, Mexico, Brazil and Abu Dhabi. We'd love to get questions from all of those places, so do send them in. But up next, we have another Ask Damon special that'll be with you on Tuesday, the 16th of August. Hit the follow button for the fastest way to get our new episodes and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast app. We'd love it if you did that. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining me and helping me answer those questions, Tom and Natalie. And thanks to all of you who've put in these uh, fantastic questions to Ask Damon. And F1 Nation is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. 